Welcome and thank you for choosing this powerful and life-changing message by Chris Vallotton. Join with Chris now as he shares from his heart the Word of God. Oh, let's pray for the message. Thank you, Lord. Jesus. Lord, we just release joy. Just pray for your joy. We pray for the new wine. <laughs> we pray for there to be revelation, impartation today. God, as we share today that, Lord, that you, would, that you would share through me, that you would use me, that you would inspire us, us. God, that you'd make the message very clear, and that, um, and that you would um, heal the sick, that you would um, encourage people today, that there would be grace released as, as we share in Jesus' name. Amen. At the beginning of last year, in fact, it was the 21st of January, I wrote this, of last year, the Lord gave me seven pillars of society. And actually, the way it happened is about five o'clock in the morning, I felt like the Lord woke me and he said, I'm going to give you the seven pillars of society. And he told me this very specifically. He said, I want you to go get a piece of paper and write this down. And so I went into my office. I got a piece of paper and I began to write. And the Lord gave me this in just a few minutes, and I've read it before, but I want to kind of expand on it. So what is it we do? When we get provoked, what is it we do? How many know that the Bible says that Abraham, Hebrews 11, he was looking for a city that had foundations and whose builder and maker was God? Did you, did you get that? He was looking for a city that had foundations and whose builder and maker is God. And Ephesians says that the foundation is apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. How many of you would like to live in a city that had Jesus Christ as its chief cornerstone? <laughs> Wouldn't it be awesome to go to a city and have Jesus Christ as its chief cornerstone as opposed to a mason sign? Are, are you with me? There's something about Jesus being the chief cornerstone and the apostles and prophets Isaiah 9 says that there shall be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Wouldn't it be awesome to live in a city that had foundations of Jesus Christ being the, the, the cornerstone and apostles and prophets being the foundation stones? Wouldn't it be amazing to live in a city like that? Some of you are like, I don't know what that would be like. Here Jesus told me, in January, he said, I'm going to give you the seven pillars of society. So we have foundations and we have pillars. And pillars are the things that hold up truth. They're the things that keep a society together. They're the things that cause the kingdom of this world to become the kingdom of our God. Let me read them to you. And this is how I, this is just the way I've got them. In, on January, in January 21st. The first one. Oh, I got to tell you this before I do that. I shared these with you almost a year ago. And when I got done sharing them, in fact, um, I shared them, again, I shared them in, in uh, school of ministry, I think it was, a few months ago. And a young man came up after I, I shared that the Lord gave me the seven pillars of society. This young man comes up and he says, I have a scripture for you. You didn't share it. I don't know if you had it in your notes. I said, what is it? He said, Proverbs 9.1 says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewed out seven pillars. Is that amazing? I didn't have that in my notes. It wasn't one of the scriptures the Lord gave me. Wisdom has built her house. 
she has hewed out seven pillars. Isn't that amazing that wisdom is building the house of the Lord? The Lord said, I'm going to give you seven pillars. I never saw that verse. I probably read it sometime in my life, I'm sure. But I never, I, I didn't realize that God is building a house that has seven pillars, that have seven, seven core values that cause the house to be sustained. Here are the seven that the Lord gave me. And this is what God said about each one of them. The first one that he gave me was justice. And he said this, the law is the facilitator of justice. The law only has purpose in bringing about and sustaining justice. When a society loses the foundations of justice, the law begins to serve itself and it starts taking on a life of its own. This creates a culture where peace officers become law enforcement officers and justice courts become magistrates of the law. Judges and juries are now charged with determining whether someone broke the law rather than if someone performed an injustice. And that's just what I got that night. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. The next one is peace. The next, the next pillar that the Lord gave me was peace. And the Lord said, this is a pillar of society. This is something that, keep, that holds, that sustains the kingdom in society. Peace. And the Lord gave me this about peace. Peace is the foundation of government. The purpose of all government is to facilitate peace. When peace is removed from government, government becomes, begins to serve itself. The goal of its officials becomes staying in power instead of extending the borders of peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness. Did you get that? Peace is not the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of wholeness. And we're going to talk more about peace in a few minutes. The next one he gave me was, was love. Love is the purpose of fatherhood. Fathers are facilitators of love. When love is lost, fathers become bosses and families become his subjects. Caring and compassion are replaced with sexual perversion and abandonment. Happiness is no longer the fruit of a loving relationship, but instead it becomes the purpose of them. I want to read that to you again. Happiness is no longer the fruit of loving relationships, but instead it becomes the purpose of them. I'm not happy becomes the reason for my actions. In other words, you making me happy. I am in this for happiness. And whenever you make happiness the purpose of your union instead of the fruit of your union, you have a perversion. Perversion means the wrong version. Did you get that? Thinking, thinking, thinking. Okay. Honor. Honor is the element in a society that allows people to be empowered rather than controlled. Honor is, honor is the responsibility of sons. They exemplify respect that results in order. When honor is served instead of serving, it causes leaders to demand honor even when it's incongruent with their character. This results in a culture of control that is manifest through fear. The next one is truth. The next pillar is truth. Truth is more than honesty. It's the embodiment of reality. The fruit of truth is life, and the word of God is the facilitator of truth. Teachers are the stewards of truth. When truth is absent from a culture, the Bible begins to be served instead of serving. This consequently leads people to learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. 
resulting in rules of religion being exchanged for the reality of relationship. Can somebody say amen? Let me read you that last part again. When the Bible begins to be served instead of serving, this leads people to learning but not coming to the knowledge of the truth, resulting in rules of, of religion being exchanged for the reality of a relationship. Truth is more than learning Bible verses. Hello. How many of you know that the Word's got to become flesh and dwell among us? Hebrews 4 says that the word is living and active. Living and active. I can reprint this. But the word of God is living and active. It's got jump to jump off the page and grab you. Okay. Okay. More later. Righteousness is another pillar. Righteousness is more than an accumulation of good character choices. Righteousness is the invisible expression of the habitation of an invisible yet holy God. Righteousness is the personification of the very nature of God being manifest in his, cre in his creatures, resulting in his likeness, emulating through his people. When divinity is absent from a culture, Godliness is reduced to goodness, which is attained through discipline instead of a pure heart. Did you get that? When divinity is absent from a culture, in other words, God's removed from a culture. When God is removed from a culture, godliness is reduced to goodness, which is obtained through discipline instead of a pure heart. And the last one is wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to rightly apply knowledge in a way that builds for the future that which was envisioned by the Creator, so that the divine ecosystem of heaven yields life. Rulers are the stewards of wisdom. They are to lead in a way that creates an environment that draws out and facilitates the destiny of people, both individually and corporately. When the definition of wisdom is reduced to the gathering and recalling of information, it results in fertility. I can't pronounce that word right, but it's in the Bible. I pronounce it in the Greek way, you know, my Greek education gets in the way and it's all Greek to me. I want to talk a little bit about some of the pillars and, and I've actually talked about justice quite a bit in the last year, so hopefully I'll make this a little shorter. But God wants justice. He wants, us to, he wants there to be a, a system of justice. And let me tell you what justice means. Justice means fairness or reasonableness, especially in the way people are treated or decisions are made. You know, really simply, justice is what we're trying to bring every time our children get in an argument. And they go, well, he did it. Well, he hit me first. Well, you took my toy. And it's like, well, you didn't have to. You know, what are you trying to... That, those are, that's a, the simplest level of a justice system, is when you, you walk into a situation like that, your siblings are arguing, and you're trying to figure out what's fair. How many of you understand? And you finally resort to this, life isn't fair. <laughs> you say that when you spank the wrong kid, like, life isn't fair, boy. That's a prophetic spanking you got right there. You're probably going to screw up next week, and you just got it right here. <laughs> I'm kidding, all right, I'm joking. Hello. But justice simply means fairness. We want things to be fair. 
And how many of you know that the law is supposed to be the facilitator of justice? The law is supposed to be the facilitator of justice. And most of us believe that if we had a dispute with a, a neighbor, or if we had a dispute with a company, that we could go to court and that the judge or the judge and jury would be able to decide justly, like you would try to do with your children. What is fair? What is honest? What is supposed to happen? And most of us are, are, are just... Um, I don't mean this harshly, but most of us are ignorant enough that we actually think that, that we live in a country that, are, that is based on justice. But it's not true. And the first time you go to court, you'll find out that the judge doesn't have the power to make decisions based on fairness. He only is empowered to make decisions based on what the law says. And when you get in there, you're going to be very surprised if you've ever been to court, if you ever go to court, You'll be very surprised that he isn't asking questions that have anything to do whether or not, with whether or not what happened to you was fair. It's all about, did you break the law? Selah. I told this story a, a while back, and I'll, I'll tell it one more time. We had a service station called Cornerstone Union 76. I had never been to court in my life. I think we were in business 12 or 13, 14 years, and um, I, I think we, we did a really good job taking care of our customers. I don't mean I never made a mistake with a customer, but I mean, basically, we were like, we're there to make sure the customer's satisfied, the customer had a complaint, return his money, do whatever it takes to make the customer happy. We're there for the long term. Hello. You know what I mean. So, we, um, a lady comes in, she wants her car, she wants her truck repaired, she said, please, uh, we're going on a long trip. I want everything fixed. Would you do an estimate for me? We bring the truck in. She was from Hayfort, California. We do an estimate. It's, I still remember the amount. It was $1,670. How many of you know that was a lot of money 15 years ago? That was a lot of money. You can get a lot done for $1,600. And so, you know, she did, she did just tons of work. It was an old truck. She, I, we wrote the estimate out on an estimating piece of paper with a completely detailed estimate of every part, every piece, every uh, uh, labor, everything. She took the estimate home to her husband, who was a logger. About a week later, uh, maybe almost two weeks later, she came back. She brought her truck, she, she called on the phone, made an appointment, brought her truck, brought the estimate, said, I'd like to have this work done. Great, she left her truck for almost a week. We um, did all that work for her. And it came out to $1,670, as you can imagine, stayed right to the estimate. Everything was fine. She was happy. She went away. Six months passed. And one day she calls me. It was on a Friday. She called me and she said, I have a real problem with the work that you did on my truck. And my husband's very angry. I said, oh, well, what's the problem? You have any problem with the work? She said, no, I have a problem with the price. I said, well, let's talk about it. She says, I'm bringing my husband down on Saturday. I said, fine, I'm off on Saturday, but I'd be glad to meet. We made a time. I came, I met her, and we went through. She brings her husband. Her husband's of this great big, what you would actually think of as a logger. Those of us who haven't been exposed to loggers know they're not all big, but this guy is a big guy who mostly grunted. <laughs> I'm serious, mostly grunted. So she's doing all the talking, and she'd say, and the, her first words out of her mouth, she opens up the estimate, and she says, you ripped me off, and he goes, yep. And that was, that was about, that was it for him, pretty much. Yep, and yeah, and ugh. So, 
Anyway, and let me just tell you a little bit of the story. What happened was she had another problem six months later. She had a problem with her brake system, which we had done a lot of work on her brake system. She's in another city. She stops at this repair shop. The guy said, well, let's see if you've had that work done, because she says to him, I had all this work done. I can't understand why I'd still have a problem. So he, she pulls out the work order, or he does, and out of the glove compartment, he looks at all the work that was done, and he says, no, the problem you have is a master cylinder that wasn't replaced. It wasn't one of the things you had done. And okay, good, so she's gonna, repair, she's gonna have it repaired, all's well. Except for the shop makes this comment. Well, I would have done that for $300 less. They see that, they see, he sees the work order and says, I would have done this for $300 less. So that sends her. So she comes in my shop, and her whole complaint is she loves the work, there's no problem, but she ran into a shop, would have done it $300 less, and her husband and her decided that she got ripped off. So I take her through the whole thing, and this is a really long story. The short story of this is that I got two more estimates from the two other shops in town who had a good reputation. I said, would you estimate this? They don't know I have a problem with this lady. I, in fact, I actually send her over there to get the estimates. She goes over there, she gets the estimates, one's for $300 more, one's for $560 more. Right? So the other two shops in town, same town, are more expensive for the same work. And I take, send her to the parts house, she gets all the receipts for, that were in her truck so that she knows all this actually did go in her truck, so on and so forth. I'm thinking everything's fine, she goes away, seems like everybody's happy. A month later, I get a certified letter from the court, I have gone, I have been taken to court. I go to court, I've never been to court before, it's in Hayfork, I have to go to her hometown in Hayfork. I get to court and I'm very confident for two reasons. One, I know I didn't do anything wrong or I would have just given her back the 300, it was actually $350. I would have just given her back the money, but I was confident that I had done the right thing. She had the estimate in her hand when she came to me the second time. And I also was friends with the judge, which I thought might help some. We go to court, she's sitting in a court, which is Hayfork Court's just like a little classroom. We're sitting in court, and it's our turn, and she gets up and she tells the judge, this, she, be, she opens with, this man ripped me off. And the judge says, okay, what is your, what's your case? And so she lays out the case, and when it's all over, it takes her about 40 minutes. And when it's all over, the judge says, well, let me just, wait, wait let, me, let me understand this, Mrs. Jones, her name wasn't Jones. Let me understand this. You're, first of all, you're happy with the work. Yes, sir, I'm happy with the work. And, um, and you got an estimate ahead of time because I can see you gave me a copy of the estimate and it looks to me like the estimate was done on this date and the job was done on this date and that tells me that you had the estimate for nearly two weeks before you decided to have the job done. Is that true? Well, yes, sir, that's true. So, so you knew how much it cost ahead of time and you're happy with the work. Oh, yes, sir, we're happy with the work. And he, he pulls down his glasses, he looks right at her and he goes, lady, what is your problem? Just like that. I'm like, I got her right there. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's what I, I hadn't even testified yet. <laughs> Lady, what is your problem? And he says to her, have you ever bought a dress and you wore it for six months and then you went someplace and you saw it on sale? She said, oh, yes, sir, I have. He said, did you take the dress back? She said, no, sir. He says, I, I don't get what your problem is. So anyway, I'm feeling really good. All's well. I leave the courtroom. He says, I take it under, what do they call that? They, yeah, they're going to, under advisory. They're going, to, they're going to tell us what the decision is later. So we leave, and um, about, I don't know, two or three weeks later, 
I get a certified letter from the court that says, she sued me for $350, but, she, but the court awarded her $1,670 back. Gave her the whole amount back because she didn't sign the estimate. And the judge wrote me a nice letter, <laughs> as nice as you can be, and he said, I did some research, and the law says that if you don't sign an estimate, you don't have a contract. And therefore, I, was, I had to give her all her money back because even though she brought the estimate with her and admitted that she had it ahead of time, because she didn't sign the estimate, you had no contract, you had no business doing the work. And he gave her all the money back. I appealed it to a higher court, and the judge, second judge agreed with the first judge, and I paid her back $1,670. Now, that was a really good education. <laughs> to be totally honest, um, it was very difficult at the time, but it helped me to realize something. In fact, uh, the judge came and, saw, uh, and, and visited me a week later, after I got the letter. And uh, he said, the law is, and he used the cuss word. I won't say it in here. But I began to realize, and the judge gave me a little education. He said, listen, have you ever been to court before? I said, no. He said, well, let me just make it really clear. The, this is not a court of justice. It's a court of law. And what I, what, the only thing I'm empowered to do is to uphold the law. And the law doesn't have anything to do with fairness. Now, some laws have to do with fairness. But the law is probably originally written for fairness, but the judge doesn't have the latitude to make decisions about fairness. He only can decide whether or not you broke the law or kept the law, and if you broke the law, you are going to be punished for that. Are you following me? So, Jesus said that he wants to bring justice to victory. <laughs> okay. Are you guys still thinking, or...? I'm needing some help. That was a, like a point right there I made. It's supposed to have a climax of you guys going, yeah, that was awesome. Okay. No, it's forced now. Forget it. We're supposed to. God wants justice to come to victory. What does that mean in our country? Isaiah 59, Isaiah looks out and he sees. It says, he, he prophesies this. He, that God looked out in Isaiah 59 and he saw that no one sued righteously and that injustice reigned in the streets. And he said this, I will not rest until justice comes to victory. I want to propose to you that part of the reformation that we're involved in is going to affect the world. It's going to go out from under the sanctuary we talked about it this morning and it's going to go into the streets and God is going to create a new foundation, pillars in our community. And that one of the pillars that God wants to restore is justice. He wants the justice court to be justice courts. He wants the courts of law to be justice courts where people can go in and feel confident that they're going to be treated fairly and that the law is going to facilitate justice, not serve itself. I want to read you just a couple of verses. Matthew 12, verse 20 says, a battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. <laughs> I like that. Part of the way I want you to get stirred to action is to begin to pray that justice comes back to victory. What does that mean? You can't pass one law and have that happen in our country. The very foundation of our court system, of our of our 
judicial system needs to be changed. And you are a part of that. And I want to tell you something else. The justice, justice does, isn't just to do with the court system. Justice has to do with you getting what Jesus paid for. Every time you walk, the, every time you get prayed for and you don't get well, every time you get sick, every time there's poverty, every time you, you are mentally um, depressed, that's an injustice. Because Jesus spent a lot of money for you to be well. By his stripes, we are healed. He was bruised for iniquities, and by his stripes, we are healed. In other words, when, we're, when people are sick and death and dying, those are injustices because there are things that have been paid for that haven't been provided. Are you with me? So there's social injustice. Jesus said, I'm not resting until justice comes to victory. There's physical injustice. Jesus said, I'm not resting until justice comes to victory. There's relational injustice. How many of you know Jesus died so that in his body, when his body was torn, he made the two into one and no longer so that there would be peace. There's no longer enemies. When you have, when there's, when there's problems in your family, that can't seem to be reconciled. That's an injustice. And he died for justice. He became poor so you could become rich. He became weak so you could become strong. He became sick so you could become well. He became sin so you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Every time we walk in less than wholeness, that's an injustice. It's wrong. It wouldn't be any different than you going down to Macy's. <laughs> Paid for a whole new wardrobe of clothes and having the manager not let you leave with them. You, that's just wrong. You could go to court and say, look, right here. They cashed my check, but they didn't let me out with what I purchased. It's an injustice. Are you following me? Jesus wants justice to come to victory. In every area of society, justice is the pillar of society. And God says the Reformation is going to include justice. This is one of the seven pillars that he hewed out by his wisdom to make his house strong. I read this last week. I won't read the whole thing, but just this one thing about justice. I read about, it's talking about abortion and the injustice of abortion. Listen to this. The ultimate injustice happens when the definition of what is conceived is determined by the method in which it is terminated. In the case of Scott Peterson, what was carried in the womb of Lacey was considered to be a child because it died along with its mother in a violent act of murder. But if Lacey had decided to abort what she was carrying in the womb, which is the ultimate act of violence, it would have been defined as a fetus, not human. Is there anything else, anywhere else in the world, that is defined by the circumstances of its termination of its termination rather than the origin of its conception. Let me ask you that one more time. Is there anything else, anywhere else in the world, that is defined by the circumstances of its termination rather than its origin of its conception? Can you imagine? You, you, you buy a car and you're, you, know, you, you drive it for six months and you don't like it. So you just run it into a wall. <laughs> jump out of the door before you do, hopefully. And you go, that wasn't an automobile. It was just an association of fasteners and sheet metal. 
Why? Because I wrecked it on purpose. But if I'm driving along and somebody runs a stoplight and totals my car, it's an automobile. Why? It happened on accident. Can you imagine a vehicle, the definition of a vehicle being determined by its termination instead of its origin? In other words, you don't really know what it is until it's over. Did you get that? That's injustice. It's injustice because the definitions, it's like this. We play the whole game, and then we determine who wins. We determine who wins. We determine the rules of the game after the game's over. And guess what? They're always determined by what benefits the law. Me. Now, what are the rules of the game? Let's finish, and I'll tell you what the rules are. Oh, you lost. Well, how do I know that? Well, you can't do that. You didn't tell me that. I know. I just made that up after the game was over. It's that bad. Now, let me say this. If you had an abortion, guess what? Thank God that Jesus forgives sins. And that just happens to be one. And anyone who's lied, cheated, still stolen, had a bad attitude, grumbled, and the list goes on, gossiped, has sinned also. So no condemnation. This isn't about condemnation for abortion. Thank God you're here. Jesus forgives you. And life goes on. And that baby gets to go to heaven. And you get to meet him there. Wonderful. Walk in forgiveness. No shame. I'm just talking about our justice system. How can you have it both ways? Because law isn't based in justice. Well, I'll have about an hour more. And it's the playoffs. I'm just joking. I have TiVo. I'm just trying to see if you get inspired by an injustice. Or I'm not going an hour more either, by the way. Let me just uh, do one, one more. I'll, I'll make this shorter. Peace is the second foundation I told you about. And I said this, peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness. Let me tell you about um, the definition of peace. It's the word shalom, and you probably have heard that word because it's the greeting that Jewish people give to one another, shalom. Like we say hi or hello, they say shalom. And shalom doesn't mean the absence of conflict. It's very interesting. Let me read you the definitions of shalom. It means completeness, soundness, welfare, peace, at ease, close friend, favorable, friendly, Greet, uh, um, sorry, peaceful, perfect, prosperity, safety, secure, trusted friends, well-being, and wholeness. Let, let me tell you that Jesus wants peace to be restored. Now, l- let me make this really clear. He doesn't want the absence of conflict to be restored. Because when the boys thought that, they were talking about Jesus setting up his kingdom. And Jesus said, you're thinking that I've come to bring peace to the earth. But I didn't. I came to bring a sword. And you go, well, I thought he wants to bring peace. He wants to bring peace not as the world gives. He said, I didn't bring peace the way the world gives. The peace I give you is not like the world. It's beyond comprehension. So I bring you peace like whew, wholeness. Health, 
friendship. That's the peace I bring you. Because if you think that peace is the lack of confrontation, then instead of being a peacemaker, you become a peacekeeper. And you know what a peacekeeper's job is? To make sure that everybody gets along. And so you know what? Dad got mad at Johnny because Johnny did something wrong, and Mom thinks it's her job to whoosh in there and like smooth it all out. Oh, we didn't really mean it. Oh, you know, and take away the pain of discipline. That's a peacekeeper. And the peacekeeper feels a lot of stress because the peacekeeper thinks of conflict as a negative thing. Something was wrong because there's conflict in the house. How do you know that whenever you feel passionate about something, you have the potential to be in conflict? You know what conflict tells you? Somebody cares. How many, how many of you are with me? How many of you are people that don't like conflict? Oh, don't raise your hands. That's okay. Shouldn't have done that to you. We, you know, we define our culture around us when we're peacekeepers by how little conflict there is. Well, we're all getting along. Oh, we make decisions unanimously. We, we always agree. I'm like, if you always agree, you've probably figured out a way to punish people when they don't. You can't live with someone you really love that has passion for any kind of, for, for life itself and tell me you always agree. I've been with this woman for, since she was 12. She's been wrong many times. <laughs> In our marriage. <laughs> yeah, someone's like, yeah, the first one was when she married you. <laughs> no, that was a sign of brilliance. You could tell she was prophetic. No, I'm just, anyway, I'm being funny there. There's no way that you can be in, in, in relationships that you care about with people who are passionate for life and not have conflict. Jesus had conflict with his own boys. What do I have to do with you guys? Oh, I don't know. One my fault. John, uh, psh, Peter, Peter. Hey, Peter. This is Peter. I thought it. Thomas. You know. The peace that Jesus is talking about that's a pillar of society isn't the lack of conflict. I, want to, I, just, I feel so strongly that I've said this in, last week and this week. It is so important for you to realize that there is a kind of conflict that, that actually says health is happening. And, and again, and I said this in first service, I'm talking about the kind of conflict that has rules for war. Kathy and I, we have rules for war. How I many you know the United States has rules, rules of war? Like, we have, you know, the atomic bomb and we have all stuff, but, you know, we want to win a war. We, we still don't drop it on people. It's kind of funny. Like, we make all these bombs, but we don't want to drop them on anybody. Why? We want to, we want to win with honor. So when I'm talking about conflict, I'm not talking about maybe what happened in your house where your parents yell and scream and throw things and call each other names. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of passion when you, you don't agree because you have passion for something and the person you, you're connected with has a passion for something else or thinks differently about it. But in, you, know, you have rules of war. You treat each other with honor. You, there's forgiveness, and forgiveness restores the standard and destroys the file. How many, some of you, the conflict is like, well, let me, let me bring back, let's see. We got a, we're in a conflict about you being home late. Man, let me pull the file on you. Oh, I mean the file. 
Let's see, you were, home, you were late, in, you know, it was back in uh, 77, you were late there, and uh, let's just look at your... I'm not talking about that stuff. Forgiveness restores the standard. <laughs> you guys are, some of you, I saw one of you go like this to your husband. That was just wrong. I'm talking about the kind of peace that is exemplified through Jesus sending his disciples into the cities ahead of him. And he said, look, here's what I want you to do. When you get to the city, I don't want you to go from house to house to house and you know, figure out who has the best pork. I want you to go to one house and stay at one house. And here's how I want you to do it. I want you to go to the house and I want you to release your peace. Now, if there's, a, if there's not a man of peace there, I want you to take your peace back and go somewhere else. That word peace, well, it's a different word in the Greek, but it's the Hebrew word shalom. So he tells the disciples, get to the house that you're going to stay in and go, peace. And he says, you'll know right away if there's a person of peace there because your peace will return to you. And if it returns to you, don't stay there. Listen, are you getting this? Like, you have something to give away. It's invisible, but it's tangible. You can go into the city, and if you have peace, you can release peace. If you, have, if you live in peace, you can release peace. Wouldn't it be awesome you go into situations where family's not getting along, or let's say the shalom of God, remember, includes healing, and health, and restoration of relationships, friendships. Wouldn't it be awesome if you came into a bad situation, husband's sick with cancer, children aren't getting along, there's no money in the house, and you walk in and you go, peace to this house. And suddenly, within days, husband's out of bed. He's, he's well. Finances begin to trickle in. Kids start getting along. And it's like, what happened? The kingdom of this world became the kingdom of our God. I'm talking about what would happen if you really had the kind of shalom that Jesus is talking about when he says, and there shall be no end to the increase of his government or of shalom, wholeness. In other words, as God begins to govern more and more and more, shalom begins to increase. One of the words for shalom I told you is friendship. I thought of this in first service. It just hit me. Do you have shalom in you? And what I mean by that is, are you friends with yourself? See, I think there's two, two people that you have to be friends with that's the foundation of all your other friendships. The first one is obviously God. And probably I should have began there and you would expect me to begin there in church. But the second one is you. Are you friends with you? Or are you enemy of yourself? Because if you have shalom, you're friends with you. It's funny how much sickness goes away, how much depression goes away, and how much conflict is solved when you are friends with you. I think I'm going to finish this morning with this story. It's a story that actually Bill told, and I actually got this part of the message from Bill. He's told it several times here. When I travel, he won't get this kind of credit. <laughs> the Lord spoke to me and said... People say that all the time. They just don't tell you that he spoke to them through someone else. Which is, you know, we get it all different ways. I got a revelation. You know, what I didn't tell you is I was sitting on the front row and Bill shared it. That's how I got it. But he talked about how the disciples 
In, in, Luke, in the, uh, Luke, I think it's 14. They're in the boat, and you know this story well, because Bill shared it here several times. And there's a great storm, and Jesus is exhausted. He's sleeping in the hole. And you know it has to be a pretty bad storm when you've got fishermen afraid. Because they've seen many storms before. You know they have. You've spent a whole lifetime on the sea. You've seen storms before. And I'll tell you what. When the fisherman panics, you in trouble. I've been in a few storms with Bob Perry. He's flown me different places. And I remember one time we were coming out of Round Mountain, Nevada, and we hit a, a, an ice storm. <laughs> and I was up front in the, in the cockpit with him. And Kathy was in the back. And the boat, you know, I don't know if you've ever hit ice in a little plane, but it feels like you're hitting, you know, someone's shooting at you. And I just looked over at Bob to see if I was going to have shalom or not. Because I figured if he was nervous, then I was going to jump out of that plane. And I looked over at my, and of course it's noisy in there, we have our headsets on, and I said, is everything okay? He said, then when we got in the ground and ready, he's like, man, that was bad. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't tell me that. Oh, I would have to change my, anyway, it was. And the disciples are scared. They're fishermen, you know, at least a few of them are. And they go and wake Jesus up and they're like, don't you care, we're perishing. He comes to the bow of the boat. And he sees the storm. You can imagine that it's, it can't be a little wind. I mean, I can imagine he was having to try to stand on the bow of the boat with the waves crashing over the boat. It had to be, it had to be a pretty dramatic scene for the disciples to be afraid. And he, he's up and gets up in the boat, and you can imagine the sails just about tipped to this water. And he stands on the bow of the boat, and he says, Peace be still. And suddenly, whew, it's like Hawaii. The sun comes out. Anybody want to ski? I think it's the Message Bible that says it this way. Shut up and sit down. And Bill makes a great point. You can't have peace over the storm unless you have peace in the storm. You know what? That is, to me, I think that's in his book too. That is an amazing concept. That you only have peace over a storm you have peace in. In other words, before shalom can get out there, it has to get in here. And so, you know what? These things that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, these pillars, it's not first about them. It's first about us. Do you have justice in your life? Are you getting what Jesus paid for? Do you have peace in your life? Is there wholeness? Is there shalom? Are you friends with yourself? Are you friends with God? Is there a well-being? You know, some of us who are my age, you know, think of peace. And words come to us like, dude. They're like the Doobie Brothers. Peace, dude. Down around the corner, about a half a mile from here. And they call me Mellow Yellow. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? I mean, peace, peace in the culture I grew up in 
had something to do with the guy being totally like, his eyes are red and he's got no energy. And he's like, dude. <laughs> Far out. You know, and if you get enough peace, you don't care about anything. It's all natural. I'm on a natural high, smoking a plant. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the shalom of God. I'm talking about the peace that passes understanding. I'm just going to read these verses, not comment on them, and be done. I know, it's a miracle that I cannot comment on them. I just have one, no, I'm just kidding. Can't find it, sorry. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I like that one. <laughs> John, I did comment. John 20, 19. So when it was evening on the day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where his disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came, stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And Jesus said to them again, and he breathed on them, Peace be with you. As I sent the Father, I also send you. <laughs> Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, so they should be called sons of God. Ephesians 6, verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I can't comment, so I'll just read it again. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Dude. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the God of peace, which surpasses all comprehension, I'm sorry, but the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things and the things you've learned, received, and heard from me, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. Amen. This concludes this message. For more information on the ministry of Chris Vallotton, please contact us at Bethel Church, 933 College View Drive, Redding, California, 96003. Or you can phone us at area code 530-246-6000. You can also visit us online at www.ibethel.org. We pray this message will continue to bless and encourage your walk with God, and may the joy of the Lord be your strength.